Welcome to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? with your host, Jeff Stein. This program really does uncover the sometime myth that all are innocent until proven guilty. The truth is that many innocent people are found guilty of a crime that they did not commit. We discuss the judicial system, its flaws, and where it could be made better. Now, here is Jeff Stein. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Episode 9 of Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? Today, our guest is attorney Tony Messina, who began working as a criminal defense attorney in 1990, first as a public defender for the Legal Aid Society, and then on her own. She has handled some of the most challenging cases in New York City, um, including charges of terrorism, murder, gang assault, rape, and robbery. One commonality she sees in many of her cases is that even though some of her clients are guilty or maybe guilty, they're often not guilty of everything they've been charged with. In her experience, the prosecutor's office routinely overcharges the people they arrest and leave it up to the defense attorney and the investigators to undo the damage. In addition to her busy practice, Tony writes a weekly column on criminal matters for the website Above the Law. She has appeared on Wolf Blitzer's The Situation Room, Democracy Now!, and National Public Radio. And I find this really interesting is prior to law school, Tony worked as a journalist covering news of international interest for CBS News and National Public Radio. She was the first reporter on the scene when Pope John Paul II was shot at Vatican Square and covered the uh, subsequent trial of of his would-be assassin. She keeps busy at home as a mom of three, now grown, grown children, and manages balance in her life by teaching and performing Spanish flamenco dance and playing, and playing and I'm going to ask you about that and playing keyboard in her husband's bossa nova band Tony thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to the show I, I know you're busy so I really appreciate you taking the time out to speak to us you're very welcome I think this show sounds like just a wonderful thing to discuss with your listeners thank you before we get started can, can you educate me on what flamenco dance is <laughs> <laughs> sure. So a lot of people, the flamenco dance is a dance from southern Spain, and it's something that the um, gypsies in Andalusia did and do. And it's wonderful kind of counterpart to criminal law because it's an expression from people who were dispossessed and were kicked out of country after country. And as they traveled through all these countries, they kind of gathered sounds and voices from, uh, from India, from Asia, from Sephardic uh, Jewish backgrounds, from Moorish backgrounds, and it all came together to make flamenco, which is a stand-up-and-be-proud-of-yourself kind of song and dance, which literally involves like stamping your feet and saying, we're here. Um, and, and I see it as I grew in and started practicing criminal law as kind of a natural uh, con- conjunction with what I do for the people who are accused of crimes and kind of need a voice and are dispossessed in that sense. That's great. I, I, I really want to check that out after I plan on uh, looking for some YouTube and, and Googling that. It sounds really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Previous shows, I've mentioned that there are many wrongful arrests and convictions in the United States. Um, With this show, we try to create an understanding for our listeners that our current judicial system is not truth and justice for all. 
and that everyone needs to be aware of this widespread problem in our country does not discriminate against race, religion, sex, or nationality. Anyone can become a victim to the judicial system because of false or coerced statements, ineffective assistance of counsel, lackadaisical police work, prosecutorial misconduct, jailhouse snitches, deceitful witnesses, and even dishonest expert witnesses. Today, attorney Tony Messina will share some of her expertise and experience providing criminal defense for her clients and defending many indigent people who are accused of crimes. And for our listeners, uh, did you know that there are approximately 2 million people in jail or in prison in the United States? And there's no perfect formula that can be applied to how many are innocent, but it is believed to be anywhere from 2% to as much as 10%. So even on the low end, that equates to about 40,000 people, or on the high end, it could be as many as 200,000 people that are innocent men and women who have been wrongfully convicted. And that does not include those who have been wrongfully charged of a crime either. So those numbers are really much higher. And, and, and Tony, I, I know um, that you see you know, a, a lot of... Before you even ask me a question, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I want to just add one big kind of overall fact to what you've just said, which is absolutely correct, and that is that for a nation, um, a developed nation of our size, or any nation, we have more percentage of our population in prison than any other nation, and our sentences are much longer than any other developed country. So it's, it's really a time to start looking at that data and saying, is this servicing our, the public safety, number one? And is it necessary? Is it fair? Or is it, dis- is, it being in- is it being applied in a discriminatory way in any fashion? And what can we do as a nation to address this issue of our first kind of um, go-to position is put them in jail as opposed to let's think of ways to, uh, to help, rehabilitate, and then make our communities safer in that way. I'm I'm glad you brought that up, and and let's talk about that for a minute because you're absolutely correct, and and there are I mean are we have more in, in prison than any other country, um, and, and we don't I I don't believe that we do a good job, and I know you've you've written an article I I think a little bit about this too is our our inmates are really treated pretty poorly. I mean they're. I don't believe they're rehabilitated, you know, like like the system wants us to believe or like they say that they're doing. I mean, there are programs in there. I mean, they can get their GED. There are some some trade um, programs in the um, in the prisons, but really they're they're not treated like people. And there are some other countries where you know a convicted um, individual gets out of prison and during that time in prison they were treated like a human and they didn't come out committing another crime where I, I so think I agree. We, when you're when your dignity is robbed from you and when mm-hmm. you're incarcerated for so long and out of touch with so much of our changing society even just think digitally right guys who went in in 1990 come out now and they have no clue how to adjust to our world with cell phones and laptop computers and their skills have not been enhanced but they've been depleted they're older now and they've got criminal convictions which basically ban them from holding I would say most jobs, how is that person supposed to try to fit back into society and make his own way? So this is a huge issue now that we've put all these people in jail that we've really got to deal with in order to make our society safer. 
Absolutely. And and I see, especially with, with the drug dealers, and when they go to prison, or if, if they're a drug dealer, they could be making 10, 20, 30,000 a week. Um, you know, I mean, they, they, they make some good money. And then they go to prison, then they come out, and there's no work for them. They can't even get a job making eight, $9 an hour. So what do they do? They go back to where they're, you know, what they know. And it, or, or they uh, go on the public dole. And, you know, that's what we're trying to enhance people's independence and their abilities to take care of themselves, even from just that perspective, that you want to make people self-sufficient. Um, criminals, rather, pr- prisons are the worst place to help people uh, move ahead, obviously, advance in life. And, and, and until there's more programs and there's more focused programming for people to gain skills and to gain so also um, information about how to deal with anger, how to deal with making long-term choices as opposed to impulsivity, it, it's not going to help them when they get out or anyone else. I agree. I mean, do you do you even think we can fix it? How do we fix it? And and I'm sure there's no there's no particular answer to that. I mean, it, it involves a lot of different things, but it's so broken. No, I think you're right. To- I, I mean, I think step A is to. I, I always think it always goes back to the the very roots, which is education in poor communities. And if we can enhance education in poor communities, then I think fewer people will turn to crime as, as an option, naturally. I, I, I really have this optimistic feeling about human beings that most people would rather work than commit crimes in lieu of working. I mean, there is a very, very small percentage of people who, who are just uh, sociopathic, but that, in my experience of doing this for so many years with so many thousands of clients, that's a .0001% who really are sociopathic, and you're not going to be able to get to them. But for the vast majorities of others, had they come from better circumstances, had they gone to better schools, had they had potentially more um, parental attention, which can be a component of this because many come from single-family homes, um, if they weren't mired in, in the cycle of poverty, they would never have committed the first crime, which then often leads to the second crime because then they go to jail and then they meet the wrong people in jail and then they can't get work. So it, it's a vicious cycle. I do think there's ways to approach this, and I think... I'm, I, I'm optimistic about our, um, our new generations. Um, I think that, you know, I see it in my own family. I think young people now are more aware of uh, social justice issues. They're more tuned into it. Look at the podcasts like yours and many others like Serial that talk about wrongful convictions. And it seems to just be on the radar. And this whole notion of being woke, right, this, mm-hmm. this is a concept that wasn't around in the 80s and 90s, and people are, more people are woke to the issue of um, vast um, groups of people being targeted um, and trying to adjust police behavior so they're also more aware of, of what may be kind of an instinct to go after just the, the black kid because he's on the street corner, right? And that you can't do that anymore. You really do have to have... a potentially a helmet camera so that everyone, if you do arrest that kid for nothing, is going to know. There's more mm-hmm. accountability now, and I think that's important. That is. You bring up some great points. Uh, I, I really like, like what, you're, what you suggest, and, and that's true. You know, I, I worked on a case, um, and it was a very well-known case, Kabani Savage. There were mm-hmm. um, four co-defendants, and it was an extremely high-profile case in Philadelphia. In fact, it was it was the it, it cost 
uh, it was the most expensive case ever tried in the southeastern district um, of Pennsylvania of, of the U.S. court. It was a federal case, and wow. and, and Cabani during the um, that really the mitigation um, phase w- when he was um, he was convicted and and um, received the death penalty, but he was thirteen he was thirteen years old when his father died. And he had two older sisters. And his father said to him, you're now the man of the house. You need to take care of the house. And I, I really think that at 13 years old, he had a lot of weight on his shoulders. And that's what he turned oh my to God, was, yes. dr- was wow. drugs. You know, and, and he became what the, with, was lab- later labeled as the drug kingpin of Philadelphia and, you know, all, all these things. But he had a, a possible future in boxing, but he turned to crime. And, you know, he lived in the inner city. They didn't make much money, and he was able to bring more money, you know, just as a 13-year-old selling drugs on the street corner than than his mother could provide for the family. So those yeah, are so things, you know. so much of this is socioeconomic, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it, if he had grown up in a different neighborhood, he, if he had come from parents who had more money or who had two parents potentially or went to better schools, he, he might have been the next, you know, founder of a new startup that made millions of dollars. Right. Yep. Yeah. One of one of his best friends who I interviewed when, you know, again, during the mitigation process, um, he, he dug his way out and he ended up um, with a, a as a, a very good career living in a really nice house, driving, you know, the uh, premium vehicles. And um, he did well, you know, but he had a different upbringing than than what Cabani had. So, you know, it, it took him and, in a and different where's path. where's Cabani now? Do you, is he still on death row? He He's he, federal, yes. Yes. Oh, boy. Well, yep. thank you for the work you did on that case. Well, thank you. So, Tony, I, I had mentioned that many people are wrongfully arrested or convicted because of false or coerced statements, ineffective assistance of counsel, lackadaisical police work, um, prosecutorial misconduct, and so forth. And I see a lot of that in, in Pennsylvania, especially in Philadelphia. And I don't know, you know, if you see a lot of what's going on in the news in Philly, but do you see that in New York as well? Yes. I mean, I think, um, so, so it's interesting. I think those are all very important issues. Each thing you mentioned deserves kind of its own chapter. And let's just start, for example, with coerced statements. I think that, I think, I think the general public has this kind of Pollyannish view about police, and by that I mean that they still don't understand the full spectrum of what police can say and do in order to uh, coerce a statement. So one very basic thing is police, by law, are allowed to lie to the person they're questioning. They're allowed to lie to that person in order to encourage them to talk to them. And I think the theory behind it, at least espoused by, you know, the court and the police is that, well, we're just getting them to tell us the truth and we're just giving them an, you know, a, uh, a reason to tell us the truth. But often what happens when you lie to people, especially the following lie, if you just tell us you did this, we'll let you out. Well, that doesn't guarantee you're going to get a truthful answer. If the person wants to get out, more, that's more important in their mind than telling what really happened, many people will admit to doing something they did in order to get out. And what follows with that lie, just tell us what happened and we'll let you out, is, and don't worry, we'll tell the prosecutor you helped us. 
this is not a big deal. And of course, that's just absolutely not accurate. They, it is a big deal when you admit to any kind of crime. They, it, it's very tough still in front of jurors to convince them that a person said something, they admitted to something they, that they didn't do, even when it was a crime. So that's a very hard battle for us to win. Um, even when you explain to a jury, you know, this kid was scared, he was questioned for 10 hours, they promised him he'd get out. Unless you have a very savvy jury, they're still going to believe that he said the truth when he admitted to the crime. So that is a huge issue. Um, and I think just spreading the word to people in communities that, hey, watch out, when police ask you a question, say, no, I just want a lawyer. That's what they should do, not say anything. And that cannot be used, literally, that cannot be used against them. That's what the Miranda rights are all about. That cannot be used against them. And so many people just think, well, I, I want to say something or it'll make me look bad. No, it'll make you look bad if you say something. So that message is an important one. It, it is. And, and I, I talked about that last week on, on uh, the show because um, there was just somebody who was, well, we can go on and on. You're absolutely right. I see it all the time. And I, I have a new case that I'm working on, a, a homicide case, and six people were charged with this. And two of the girls already got out. And um, now she's recanting her statement. And she was 17 years old at the time. She only served eight years. And she was 17. And so they came and they said, oh, yeah, we have, you know, the other co-defendants locked up. And they're saying that you did it and you're responsible. And because you're the youngest that, you know, you won't get in as much trouble. So now she started fighting. She started, you know, saying, "Okay, well, he did it, you know. And there was one person in this car who never even got out of the car. He was just there really for a ride. He had he had he was not part of this plan. And he ended up getting sentenced 30 to 40 years when oh my he, never, he never left the car, you know. But again, it was oh, because of her, her statement. And she's recanting that now. But you know how difficult it, it, it is. Oh, it is. I was just going to say, if your listeners haven't seen um, the Netflix docu, uh, docudrama, it's not a documentary, it's fictionalized, <laughs> but it's based on true, uh, true facts, <clears throat> called How They See Us, which is... a is all about dramatization of the Central Park Five case, yes. which everyone remembers, the Central Park jogger, and how they rounded up all these kids, some of whom were uh, juveniles, I think most of whom were juveniles, I think only one was above 16, and put them in um, interrogation rooms and badgered them without their parents for hours and hours and hours, uh, separately, of course, because then they could say, well, so-and-so said, you did, did this, and he's like, what? So each, they got each one of them to make statements. And even though the statements conflicted with each other, they still said they all confessed. And, and as we all know, they all were convicted. And they all did substantial amount of time in prison until they finally matched the DNA from the scene with the guy who was already in jail and convicted of rape. And he admitted to having committed the crime. So that's another example of how dangerous it is for police to use certain tactics, especially mm-hmm. on certain vulnerable populations like young people, like people who may have borderline um, intellectual functioning or people who are arrested and coming down from drug use and therefore are just craving another hit um, and can't think clearly. And, and I would hope that police organizations at some point would take another look at their practices and revise them. Uh, there's been a big change in New York. I don't know if it 
it's true in Pennsylvania, and I think this is true for many states, that they've just decided that they will tape record, videotape, the police, uh, the initial police encounter with the suspect, the initial interrogation. They've never done that. They've often taped the subsequent interview with the prosecutor when the person's already been primed, right, to know what he has to say, and then that's videotaped. But the initial encounter with just the detective, which can be hours, was never taped in New York. So you were just reliant on what the detective said happened, what what the exchange contained. And now, though, in serious cases, they are going to start taping that. And I think that's going to be a a big game changer in what jurors see, how this confession or statement was elicited. I do, too. And and that's great. I know in Philadelphia they're supposed to do it, but it's it's you see occasions where for some reason the camera didn't work. It wasn't recording, you know, so they they find some ways out of that. But hopefully that'll be standardized really across the country. And and, you know, just as you were saying, you know, they, they're vulnerable. Sometimes they interrogate them for 17 hours. You know, they they pick them up at 11 o'clock at night. They've been arrested or they've been up all night. And now they keep drilling them and drilling them and drilling them with no sleep for 24 to 48 hours. You break down after a while. I mean, it's difficult for, for any of us, you know, whether you're guilty or not, to really not give in to say, I won't sleep. You know, I'll sign anything to just get out of here. Because that's what they promise you, you know, say that you're going to do this and we'll work with you. You'll go home tonight. Well, that's not true. <laughs> no, I, I, com- I agree with you. And I think that if there's one message your listeners can take away, and I'm sure you've said it to them before, and is really when any time a detective or a police officer comes to your door or stops you, even if it's for speeding, the best response is, I, I don't want to say anything, officer, and you know, give them whatever they want in terms of your license and registration if you're stopped in your car. But I don't want to say anything else. And they're not going to look at you. They're professionals. They're going to look at you like, fine, I'm not going to mess with this person and move on. Right. Absolutely. So in Philadelphia, there's a lot of corruption. And just this week, just, just yesterday, I believe, or the day before, the police commissioner abruptly resigned. And there's now allegations of sexual misconduct and harassment through the ranks and so forth. Um, in the news, it looks like NYPD is dealing with several officers committing suicide. So the, the trends in police work is changing drastically, especially over the past 10 to 15 years. How do you think that affects our clients? Well, I mean, it depends kind of what, there's so many things in that bucket of, right, of, of sub, in that subject in and of itself. Um, so, so as I said, I think there's more accountability now, which is a very good thing, because the public, there, there's many more media outlets, like your own, that are kind of scrutinizing this more than ever before. So there's not an assumption, whatever the police did is right, there's more either a neutrality or even a critical perspective. Huh, I wonder if that, that kid really, you know, did reach for his pocket and justified that cop shooting him, for example. Um, this whole Eric Garner case in New York, this is, that's the man of Staten Island who was, there was a chokehold applied to him and he died even though he was gasping, I, I, I need air, I need air. And he was just arrested for uh, illegal selling of cigarettes on the sidewalk. And it, it took this much time, it took years before that investigation uh, was completed and the police commissioner fired the police officer involved. 
So, it, I mean, it, there still is a huge, I think, kind of... They're, they're coming, the police in general are still largely um, coming in with a lot of, uh, let's say, with the white hat. And, and fair enough. They should. Mm-hmm. They do protect our communities. Yep. And I think the overwhelming number of police officers do have a tough job and they do their job well. But it's important to keep your eye on things that can seep in to corrupt any police organization because they have so much power. They have so much unfettered power. And it's, it's common that one police officer will back up another in terms of a version of a story or to protect their back. And I do think, though, that, as I said, this has changed now, and we are being more critical of our police forces. It is interesting in New York what you brought up about the suicides. You know, I, I can't speak to that. That's a story I'd like to look into more. I don't know if it's an aberration, right, um, coincidence, or there's something happening in the department um, that's leading to that. But that's an interesting, that's an interesting issue to look up. I, but as you say, in every police department, it can, there can be corruption. I know there was a big story in New York because police officers, undercovers, were running a huge um, prostitution ring in Queens. I mean, huge. T- taking in like millions of dollars. And, and finally, that was, I don't remember how it was investigated and determined it was them, but there was about at least 10 police officers that were busted in that ring. So it's really important that there's a balance of power and that there is a healthy skepticism about how police officers work because otherwise there'd be nothing to counter the incredible amount of power they have. I mean, think about it. They have the ultimate power to determine who to stop who to deprive of their liberty, even if it's momentary, but how to disrupt that person's life. So the public has to look into this and make sure they're doing their job by the book. All good points, and and I agree with all of them, and and I just want to just add, I say this on almost every show, I am pro-police. I'm not anti-police. I have some of my best friends are, are police officers. One of my college roommates is a chief of police of Cape May. Um, I, I love our law enforcement, you know, local, state, federal. It's just a few bad apples, unfortunately. And, you know, when you look at police departments like Philadelphia that have, I want to say, 6,000 police officers, you know, a few bad apples there is more than just one or two. So that creates problems and challenges. And I do agree, you know, that people, especially with, with the media and social media and, and all these other venues, the podcast, this podcast and, and all the shows on, um, that they are being scrutinized. The only thing that I, I will say that I, I don't think is, is helpful right now, and you may agree or disagree, and, and the listeners may agree or disagree, but they are lowering the standards to get hired because there's just not as many people applying like they used to. Years ago, it was a very desirable job, and, and to some, it still is. But they lower their standards with um, with drug use. They lower their standards with, with criminal, criminal records, not necessarily convictions, but even charges against them. Um, they lower their um, standards with um, the physical fitness. There's just so many things. Um, 
because of you everything that's... Are you specifically to Pennsylvania or to Philadelphia? Oh, no, no, or? no. This is uh, across the country. Even the FBI has lowered their standards um, for their recruits. Absolutely. You know, and, and again, marijuana comes into play now because in some states it's legalized. So, you know, in the past where you can never use it or you can only use it three times, now it's okay to use it 20 times or 30 times or, you know, there's just, there's different standards. Um, and for the millennials, which really come into play, the millennials, a lot of them don't want to work nights, weekends, and, you know, doing some of the, the <laughs> The work that, that makes that's sense. required. I mean, I'm just I'm laughing only because I've heard this through many, many, many fields. I never thought of how it would translate to police officers, but it makes sense, yeah, that and, they would also and, feel the same in that field. And, of course, it's not the kind of field you want to go into if you feel that way. Right. And they can make a lot more money, you know, doing computer stuff and IT things. You know, there's, there's a lot of money to be made. And so when they feel that, you know, when they see that they can work Monday through Friday, nine to five or whatever, making X amount of dollars instead of working on Christmas and Thanksgiving and New Year's, you know, there's there's it's not as desirable to all like it used to be. So I, I think that's a challenge. And then trying to find those right candidates to get in there, because when you start lowering standards, you're obviously that's going to move forward, you know, as they, as they mature through their, through their career. Oh, and I think another important standard that I hope is being maintained is, is a psychological standard. I know there's some kind of psychological testing they do. I would, uh, anyway, I would hope it's uniform in the whole nation, but it's so important to know, if, for example, if someone, I don't know what kind of test they would give, and in fact, I'd be interested in looking into it, um, has impulsivity problems or has anger issues or how they'd respond in an emergency. That stuff is critical, and I don't know what kind of testing they do to to determine those kinds of susceptibilities. I I think every department's a little different. Obviously, the the federal agencies have their standard, you know, and, and some even include a polygraph, but... Some of the other other departments, they don't, especially in some of these rural towns. Um, and, and, you know, and then people can transfer from one department to another. So I think there's some challenges I mean, there, and I, hopefully they can. Yeah, no, I know. I, I was going to say, I think the good news about in, being in law enforcement is, one, for anyone, it's kind of a mission, right? It's, it's a very different kind of job than being in IT. And anyway, you can be a cop and be in IT, right? You can move to that kind of a position because, believe sure. me, they need a lot of people in that field. But in terms of just being a beat cop and moving up the ladder to detective, et cetera, um, I think in many ways, because I've worked with a lot of police officers, former police officers who are now investigators, and they've helped me in a lot of cases. And they've, we've, had, we've shared a lot of conversations about their work. And they say that, uh, you know, if you do your job, it, it, there's wonderful, there can be a wonderful camaraderie. There can be a feeling of really serving the public. And there's a great pension. And you can leave after, I don't know if it's 20 or 25, depending on where you are. You get in at 22, you're retiring at 44, you work, you still got another 20 years of work in you. And so it, 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 I, I see it as I can understand where there may be, like, people don't like us anymore. We're always being looked at askance. But I bet that's only in a few urban areas. Um, and, and still, in most places, they get a tremendous amount of respect and deference, and they have a tremendous amount of power. So, you know, for people who are interested in, in being police officers for the right reasons, right, I think yep. it can be a wonderful profession. 
Absolutely. I, I agree with you. And and you had mentioned all the power that they have. Let's just change gears for a second. The prosecutors have a lot of power. Um, the, in, you know, in some areas, they call them the district attorneys or assistant district attorneys, but they have a lot of power. And why, to me, it seems like there's very little done to the prosecutors when they fail to follow the rules, like Brady violations, for example, right? So if they don't share right. something and it's a Brady violation, um, the the defendant can now file, you know, for um, uh, an appeal because of the Brady violations, but they don't right. get in trouble for it. There, there's no there's no slap right. on the wrist. There's no nothing. I, I right. just feel You're that. Right. And I do think that's outrageous. I think um, they have immunity, right, from civil mm-hmm. uh, lawsuits. So I, all I can, in addressing that, I, I just, I think there are defense organizations that are pushing for that to change. I know our defense organization in New York, um, we have a New York State Criminal Defense Asso- uh, Attorney uh, Association. We lobbied in Albany um, State Capitol this year, and they did adopt a, a review board to look at prosecutors against whom complaints are made for specific, like Brady violations or other types of complaints. And the prosecutor's office is fighting it tooth and nail. They've now put, they've now sued. There's a, there's a, there's litigation in the appellate courts about it, and they're doing everything they can to stop it from being implemented. Um, but I think it's high time that, that something like that does happen because you're right. The, the ultimately, right, as you know, police are the first gate, right? They determine who gets arrested to some extent, who they're going to bring in affirmatively. Right. And then it's up to a prosecutor to determine, yes, what the police officer tells me makes enough probable cause to continue the case, and this is what we're going to charge. And that's the big issue. What do you charge a person with? If um, you can charge with something like, let me give you an example, petty larceny because they went into a store and stole perfume, or you want to call it, the prosecutors can say, I want to call it burglary because they've been in the store before and told not to come back. So that decision determines the whole rest of how the case works out, but also the whole rest of that person's life. And that's only that, that decision is informed in part by politics. And some uh, DA's offices uh, or prosecutorial offices, their, their policy just is go for the most serious thing you can go for because that's just our stance. I, I don't think that's the case anymore in Philadelphia with your new uh, district attorney. But um, in many, many places, as it is with our new attorney general in Washington, right, it, it seems to be mm-hmm. just go for the gusto. And if a jury doesn't like it, hopefully they'll find them person guilty of something less. But that's a big risk. I think they need to have more, uh, there needs to be more upfront um, attention paid to do we really need to charge this person? Because there may be lots of mitigation, right, in the first instance. And I'll give you an, exa- an example in a case I did. I had a woman, no, no prior criminal history, and she was going through a, a psychotic break. That's another very tricky area, right, as I'm sure you know, and how to charge people who are in the midst of a mental illness issue who really have no criminal intent. But she was wandering around um, Port Authority, which is the big bus station in New York, you know, literally millions of people every day, and she was talking to herself and went into a pharmacy like CVS, and she picked up a, uh, a can of lighter fluid. 
and she was talking to herself, and she didn't have a match, but she did open it, and she started, like, spritzing it. So, of course, that's very scary. And um, the police came, the security guards closed the store. They arrested her. No harm was done, but they were, the, the, the prosecutor indicted her for arson, which is a very, very serious crime in, in New York. You can imagine because it's a big urban area. It's a violent crime. It carries with it mandatory minimum prison time. And it was clear that, but for her mental illness, she would not have done this. Now, the people could have indicted it for a lesser crime, attempted arson, or a lower even level of arson. But because they'd indicted for this top crime, we were left bargaining our way, plea bargaining our way out of hole, right? Because only the mm-hmm. prosecutor can determine what plea bargain is issued. The judge right. has nothing to do with it. And so... Um, it, it actually is working out well, ultimately. It's been many years, but they eventually agreed after she spent some time in jail to get into a mental health program, and she's doing really well on the outside. And if she does well for another, I think, six months, she'll be able to replead to a misdemeanor, which is great. But it took a lot of work, and, and an investigator going to the scene and talking to security guards and talking to other witnesses who were there so that we could convince the prosecutor this was the right thing to do. But had they not indicted for that, we would have had a better time. And if it, it was, it's just so, uh, you know, random in that I happen to get a, a sensitive prosecutor. What if I didn't? This woman would be in jail for up to seven and a half years, right? Mm-hmm. Just because they decided to indict on something. That wasn't really a fair charge in the first place. Right. Yeah, and, and I, I think... They do that for leverage because then it gives them the opportunity if if they want, like you mentioned, to plea bargain down. But they they throw everything at them, and if they don't have the funds, it it, it becomes even more challenging. And if if they do, even if they're middle class and they need to get proper legal representation, it, it can cost a lot of money. It can add up, you know, especially if it's it's a long drawn out trial or you know it goes back and forth. And that can really bankrupt people. It, it's just, it, that's part of yeah, our that's system. That's another good that, point. You're mm-hmm. absolutely right. I wanted to bring up one other thing just because it's on my mind. I'm in the midst of this right now with a case. So I had a, a very, very high-profile case where um, a group of guys were accused of the murder of a 15-year-old last summer in the Bronx, right? And it, it became a media sensation because the actual attack was on video. And it was released, and I'm not sure how, because only police had secured all these video cameras, so I'm guessing police released it to social media or somehow it got into social media, this video, of, of these uh, guys attacking this 15-year-old, dragging him out of a bodega. It was just a horrific video and a horrific event. And I rep- I'm representing one of the defendants in the case, a young man who's only 18. And... Um, the reason I bring it up is because really my client, whose name is Manuel, did not, it's such a hard thing to even talk about now because the, the video is so gruesome and it's so easy to say, who cares what he really did? It just looks horrible. Um, only one person of this group of five guys actually killed this, this victim. And it was at the very last moment of the event. They, they all ran in. They kind of go toward him. And the, the boy had very few injuries except for the last stab by one guy. And our whole defense was, 
my client did not ever intend that this boy be killed. He didn't do anything to kill the boy, although he was with this group, but there was no shared intent. The people decided uh, to, pro- you know, in New York we call the prosecutor the people. The people decided to, uh, to indict everyone for the, something I've never seen in all my years, for murder, but under the theory of torture. So that elevates this murder to the highest, to murder one, which is reserved usually for killing a police officer or for a, such a heinous act that it could be nothing less. And by indicting them for murder one, it, if the judge chooses, he can put these kids in jail without a chance of parole. So not only for life, which means you still get to see parole at some point after mm-hmm. 25 years, but this is without even that chance. And I thought it was just such pandering to the media because the media jumped on this case about the monsters and um, poor, there was, there was all sorts of fun started for Justice for Junior and parades and street named after him and the summer camp that um, there was no way to kind of shift the narrative to an idea of due process. Uh, and I think had the people not indicted him, them all for torture, we might have, number one, had a slightly more even playing ground. But um, it's another case where by over-indicting, we, we, it was almost impossible to do anything at trial to help. Hmm. That is an interesting case. I, I know I read a little bit about it, um, what you wrote previously. And and. I, that's where you brought up earlier when we were talking with the media attention on on some of these large cases, and it really it it it, it turns and and the jurors see this, they read it, they hear about it. You know, it's not especially in this day and age. You know, they they want the jurors not to listen to the news or watch the news, but they get these alerts on their phones. I mean, it's it's almost impossible unless you keep somebody in a padded room to keep them um, sequestered like that. So th- that, I'm sure, has a, a play on things as well. I, I, oh, yeah. I, I mean, even nowadays, it's, it's an interesting dilemma. You, you, for example, this, the Harvey Weinstein case, you're familiar mm-hmm. with, of course, the, the, yep, uh, you know, the media mogul accused of sexual harassment, and that's about to start in New York, September 9th. And um, there's no way to keep that out of the headlines. So his lawyers just moved for a change of venue from Manhattan. But... Rightly so, right? The judge is saying, well, where are you going to go? Unless you go to another country, (laughs) there's not going to be any state that's not going to be seeing information about this case because even if you open your email, there's a page often, right, for most people that comes up with news bulletins. So even changing venue in this shifting kind of paradigm of media attention doesn't necessarily help in these big cases. Um, I think, you know what, I, as a tip, because it's something I've been thinking about, I think as defense attorneys, and we have to take a new approach, which is we have to somehow make the media our friend and shift the narrative so that they're in some way also including our perspective. Because if it's going to get that much attention, we can't just ignore it anymore. We have to contribute to it but with a perspective that's different than what they've only heard from the prosecutor or from the victims. I, I agree. And, and that is a challenge. And I, I can tell you some, I guess, some of my challenges I have, as much as I agree with that, we, we want to get the media involved. Um, I have uh, two cases that will be uh, on TV um, 
between later this year and 2020. One will be on the ID channel. And there was a documentary done on one of my cases. There was a juvenile lifer. And he was sentenced to life uh, in prison without parole as a juvenile. He, he was convicted of killing his 13-year-old brother when he was 15. And mm. to, this, to this day, I still don't believe it. Um, and I'm, I'm working on some things. Uh, however, two years ago, when I got a person of interest that came to me and, and I wanted to go work on it, they did not because the district attorney's office started to proffer with him. And they said, let's make a deal, you know, because as you know, um, I'm sure you do. And I think it was in 2012, the Supreme Court ruled that it's um, it's unjust to sentence a juvenile to life in prison without Mm -hmm. parole. So Mm -hmm. all the juvenile lifers need to be resentenced. So he was he was sentenced or he was originally charged with first degree. And so they they started to proffer with him. And they said two years ago. Admit that you did it because he never, he, he pled not guilty the whole time and, mm. and stuck mm-hmm. to his story. And he, they said, say that you did it, admit that you did it, and we'll change it to um, third degree and you'll be eligible for parole this past January. And so oh he did. Oh, my God. And, oh, and, wow. and I, I don't blame him. I mean, that was a sure thing. So he was released a few months ago. Um, I picked him up from prison with wow. his family. And I still have a person of interest that I'm pursuing on this, um, you know, and, and I, I don't know that he did it for sure, but I hope to exonerate him one day. So there is a documentary done on this. Um, but I guess where I'm going with this, I have an, an, another case, and this will make more sense, I guess, that will be on um, CNN has a series called Death Row Stories. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've seen that. So one of my clients is, is um, going to be featured on that. And there's there's some new evidence that I have that or some new things that came to light that I can't talk about because I haven't testified to it yet. And in November, we finally I've been working on this case for five or six years. There's going to be a a PCRA hearing, the Post-Conviction Relief Act. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we're we're hoping we've we finally got some progress. But there's so much about this. I told the district attorney in the past who committed this crime. Um, You know, I have alibi witnesses and. The list goes on and on. There, there's a lot to this case. But I guess what I'm trying to say is there's things that I would love to have said um, to CNN and would love to say mm. it right now, but I can't because it hasn't been testified to yet. So I, I guess what so I'm saying is... in other words, is, you don't want to reveal it in advance of your own testimony. Correct. And, and you can get in trouble for that as well. I mean, I, I can't... Right, it hasn't been documented well, in the courts yet. Well, confidentiality issues too, right? Right, absolutely. With the clients. So you know, it's interesting, that's... this case I was talking to you about, which is called the junior case, known colloquially, the judge, is, I, I was the one made this big motion to the judge saying, you know, there's just too much media attention on this. We can't start the case so quickly after the event, right? We had the trial in um, May, and the event wasn't even a year old. And the, the judge's response was, fine, I'm issuing a gag order. No one can talk to the press. Now, that cut, out, cut, us, cut our legs out from under us. I'll tell you why. The, the parents of the, the decedent kept talking to the press because not, not, they don't have to abide by a mm-hmm. gag order. So even though the prosecutor and us, five defense attorneys could not talk to the press. The, the, the decedent's parents were out there doing interviews. They're doing to do a movie. They're, you know, 
So their whole perspective and position, you know, defaming our clients was out there every day and the press needed something, so they were going to them. And we were left mute. So we couldn't respond to all that was happening, even during the trial, where, for example, I was being threatened by the decedent's brother until he had to be kicked out of court. But the press never knew that. Um, And other issues that kind of changed the... uh, the profile of the case, we couldn't tell the press. So, you know, as I say, just going back to what you're talking about, how sometimes there is information that you really do want the media to know, and that can assist your case. And I think in our modern day and age, I think there's been a long-standing conventional wisdom that defense attorneys don't talk to the press. They're your enemy. And I think that's just not true anymore. I think we have to figure out how to use the press to our advantage in promoting what our side of the story is. Right. Yeah, I agree. And, and I, I, get, I guess if you can find that, that magic solution where you can work with the press during the trial or, or prior to the trial um, versus after the trial, because at that point it's, it's too late. You know, the, the jurors have already made their, their mind up and, and so is the public. So, finding that happy median, I guess, to be able to share just enough with the media to have them understand that there is another side to the story. (laughs) Yeah. That's, but the the, the more we can get them on the side, on our side and not, and let me rephrase that. It's it's not about sides, I guess. And and that's kind of the the next thing leading right into this. I always feel like when we go into to court, it's us against them, meaning the defense against the prosecution. However, it's not a football game or a baseball game. You know, we're, we're both working um, honestly in the best interest of the law. Both sides should be really working together to identify the truth. Instead, it seems like someone is always trying to hide something that can lead to the truth. And, and why is there such an adversarial approach from the prosecution? And, and with that being said, if if you hide something mm-hmm. from the prosecution, you're going to get in trouble for it, right? You can get suspended. Yeah, you're right. You, you know, but if they hide it, again, it goes back to the Brady laws. If we ever find out, yeah, okay, 20 years from now, they you know they get released because of these Brady violations. But so what? They don't lose their license. You're, you're they don't lose their right. pension. I mean, I think the big point is we're trying to just level the playing field because yeah. the the. The power, as it is, is so weighted in favor of the prosecution. So by leveling the playing field, at least there's a shot at getting due process and a real application of the presumption of innocence. But I I just read a great book, and I recommend it. It was called Blind Justice, and it was written by the um, former defense attorney who now runs the Ohio Innocence Project. And it's very well written, it's easy to read, and it covers this issue of why are the prosecutors so hesitant when you've got information that shows they may have actually had the wrong person and that person's been convicted and we just want to get the DNA so we can do our own test or we just want to look into this further, help us. And most, I I think, times the prosecutor's position is we're not helping. Go to court, Mm -hmm. make us help you. So why is it that's their position? And and one of the theories of this author was that, like all human beings, we like to win. And we don't want to admit when we made mistakes. And think of the guilt, right, that must accompany 
a, a prosecutor knowing he was responsible for putting the wrong person in jail for that long. And the other issue he talks about is cognitive dissonance, that once we latch on to a theory, we then interpret everything we get after that, like, Ed is guilty, that guy's guilty, to, to um, mesh with the theory we have because we just don't want to move off of our position. And I think that's what, why, in part, prosecutors don't want to admit. And plus, of course, they're, I'm sure, worried of civil suits, right? Because there are civil suits that then could, uh, could occur based on these exonerations. But I think more important, the overriding issue should be, we got a, a potentially innocent person in jail. Let's do something about it. Absolutely. That, that, you, you hit the nail on the head. You're, and I look forward to, I'm going to read that book, Blind Justice, because that's, that's just it, leveling the playing field. But let's all look to seek the truth. I mean, if, if a mistake was done and somebody was convicted or, or charged, it doesn't matter. You know, let's figure out who really did, because what people often forget is, you know, there, there is somebody who's wrongfully accused. That means there is somebody who really is out there who did it. And, and should be right. held responsible. You know, I don't, I don't want to say that they should just go along their, their merry way um, by any right. means. You're absolutely right. I mean, it, it, it's interesting. But we do have, as you put it, an accusatorial sense, I mean, uh, system. So we don't work together. It is what we developed as our criminal justice system, which, you know, as opposed to Europe, where it's inquisitorial and it's more of an investigative process that the prosecution does which has its own problems, believe me. But, um, I, you know, I lived in Italy a long time and covered a lot of cases there. But I think what makes our system work, and I prefer our system, is when there is some degree of transparency from the prosecutors where they do give you all the information they have to and they don't stand on their high horse and feel like we just have to win. No, their first call should be to do the right thing and to find, as you said, the correct person who did the crime not about just winning whomever they have decided mm-hmm. was the person originally who they decided was guilty, even though he may not, their information may show he may really not be the guilty party. Right. No, absolutely. Tony, I can't believe that almost an hour has passed, and, and we, were, we were so engaged in our conversations. I skipped um, two different commercial breaks so we can keep going. So we Ooh, only have thanks. about a minute, a minute left in the show. I really would love to have you on again. I really enjoyed speaking to you, and, and, um, and your, your knowledge and wisdom is, was really informative and valuable. So thank you so much. Can can you well, share welcome, what is and I wish you great luck with the show. I think your service, uh, you know, you're serving a very important purpose, and I hope all your listeners appreciate it and that more listeners come along. Thank you so much. What's the best way for for our listeners and for for potential clients to reach you? I would say go to my website, which is Tony Messina Law, T O N I M E S S I N A Law dot com. And that has um, all of my information of how to reach me. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much. And to our listeners, uh, I, I would definitely recommend if you have a need in the New York City area to reach out to Tony. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you use to listen. As we continue to increase our listener base, we appreciate your positive reviews. Have a great day.
Thank you for listening to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? We can be heard Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please join host Jeff Stein for another edition of the program next week. 